because we want to live life by design. So when you finally get there, you have to ask yourself, am I really living life by design and enjoying my financial freedom? Or am I just a slave to more financial freedom that's going to cost, you know, cost me a lot more hours to get there? So what's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategies podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Taylor Lode. And today our guest is Anna Kelly. Today, we're going to talk about how she achieved financial freedom by investing in real estate. She set a five-year plan, which we're going to cover today. You're going to learn about how you can set a five-year plan and successfully execute on it like she did and achieve your financial goals. So a lot of fantastic lessons in this episode. As a quick note, I learned after we recorded, she pronounces her first name Anna, not Anna. Called her Anna in this a couple of times, so... Certainly, uh, I apologize to her about that. I apologize to her after uh, <laughs> after we recorded. But for those listening, it's Anna, not Anna. Sorry about that. But uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm thanking you for tuning in. I am a real estate investor, a multifamily syndicator, a busy professional, and what I like to say, uh, a certified busy person. I love investing in real estate and cash flowing assets and talking to others about how they can invest in real estate, even if they don't think they can. This is a great episode if you're someone who has limiting beliefs, if you believe that you're too busy to invest in real estate, just listen to Anna. She's going to disabuse you of that notion. Without any further ado, here we go with Anna Kelly. Anna, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be on the show with you. Happy to talk with you again. We just met at the Mid-Atlantic Summit, said we got to get on a call, do a podcast together. You've made some really awesome progress as a real estate investor over the years, and you were just telling me about that. For our audience, can you introduce yourself and tell us about your experience? Sure. So I started out interested in investments about 25 years ago. I did private banking for um, a large bank and I had a lot of uh, clients who we told about traditional investments like stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. And they kind of piqued my interest because a lot of my really wealthy clients owned real estate and told me that they made better returns in real estate than the traditional types of investments we were trying to sell them. And so I started dabbling in real estate by buying a little condo instead of paying rent and house hacking. And I flipped my first property about 16 years ago. And then 13 years ago, I decided, you know, I need to start buying rental real estate and having some cash flow come in. And so I started um, buying rental real estate, thinking I was going to be able to retire really quickly from that. And then the market crashed in 08 and kind of slowed down my progress. Um, And so in a nutshell, about five years ago, I created a five-year plan to exit my job and to retire um, from AIG, life insurance company that I worked for. And I needed to create a passive income big enough to replace my six-figure income and then kind of save up a bunch of money so that I, I could do that. And I retired from my job of 20 years at AIG just this May. Um, And so I've been retired just for a few months and have really shifted my gear um, primarily to multifamily investing. So that's that's great. Um, Do you think that, so you recently left your job. Do you think that if you had at any point made a five-year plan, you would have been able to retire earlier or did you have to get to that? point. I had to get to that point. And, and really the reason is because when I started in 07, it was the height of the economy, not a whole lot unlike it is today. And money was easy. I bought my first property with 
uh, 10% down and they let me put that 10% down on a credit card. Wow. So, I mean, I got in no money down into a commercial building. I bought a four unit building with like 3% down to live in and money was pretty easy. And so I thought I'm going to be retired in no time because I had little, two little children and I wanted to be home with my kids. And so that's why I got started into this. And when the economy changed, you know, nobody could have expected that that was going to happen. We had just started a business, my husband and I, he's a chiropractor. And we started that business in 07 with almost three quarters of a million dollars in debt. Wow. So to start a business, we thought, well, we'll do the real estate on the side and the business will be doing well in no time. And, you know, we're going to be rich within a year or two. That's what we thought, honestly. And the economy crashed. And at that point, I almost lost my job. I could not get any more real estate loans because I worked for AIG and they were in the news every day, literally. And so my job was viewed as, un as unstable. We had a lot of debt and I was really a risk to banks. And so I thought that I'd be able to find a way to, you know, do some creative financing or find any lenders that would lend to me. And they basically told me no and slammed the door in my face for about three and a half years. So while I had a five-year plan early on, uh, everything that I knew to do basically shut it down. And I will say, I didn't know about syndication at the time um, or much about it. It was just kind of starting to, you know, people talk about it in early 09. But we were so busy just trying to support our family and stay afloat, keep my husband's business afloat and, you know, keep my job that really we just kept the few rentals we had and just kept improving them and hoping eventually we could raise the values enough and the banks would start saying yes. And basically about five years ago when I went finally back to a couple banks and said, look, I've had these properties for several years. I've never been laid on a payment. I just want to use the equity to buy more. Can I, can I take an equity loan as a down payment on another? They finally said yes. And when they did that, I knew, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of back in business. I can use some banks and use some seller financing types of, of models and start growing my portfolio again. So yeah, you went, you're in a difficult situation and it had to get to the point where you felt you had the bandwidth to maybe double down or triple down on the real estate investing that you were doing. So it wasn't necessarily viable when you were keeping the business afloat and raising your kids and managing the couple of rentals that you had at that point. So that makes a lot exactly. of sense. Exactly. So what's in your portfolio right now? What do you have? So my husband and I own 70 units that we own 100% of here in central Pennsylvania. They're worth about $7 million. I own 200 units with two partners that we've actually just bought in this last year. And they're here in central Pennsylvania. Those are a JV um, ownership structure. And then I'm a general uh, partner and a co-sponsor on 250 units in Atlanta, Georgia. And then I'm invested in like 1,500 units passively with retirement funds. That's great. So you have a pretty diverse portfolio. And what are you looking for moving forward? Because in the amount of time that you've been investing, there have been a couple of market cycles. And you said earlier that you feel we're at a peak right now. Mm -hmm. So what are you looking for that you feel is going to ride out whatever difficulties might be coming down the road? Sure, that's a really good question. And, and I, I will say this, a lot of people say that apartments are recession proof or that self storage is recession proof. And the reality is there is nothing that is recession proof. You can invest in certain types of assets that are more resilient to a recession and that tend to do better than other assets do during a recession. And those are the kind of things that I'm focusing on. So 
because I have most of my experience in residential housing, whether that be a, a single or a small multifamily or a large multifamily, investing in housing where people live, it's what I'm really more of an expert at. So I feel like I'm more malleable staying in that space. And so I'm looking for multifamily housing um, that have a couple of characteristics. One, I don't want it to be class A brand new. Two, I don't want it to be class D or class C minus, and really even class C by most standards. I want to be in an area that's a class A to B area that has really strong schools and a really diverse um, economic outlook. So lots of different diverse employers. I want hospitals. One study that was really interesting after the last recession and several previous recessions is that the areas that did best were those that were really close to a, a big anchor hospital. And so I like to invest in areas that are really close within like 15 or 20 minutes from a big hospital system and where you have Mac manufacturing and trucking and technology, um, education, all types of diverse employers so that if any one employer base or any one industry is hit hard in the recession, you're not going to lose a big part of your tenant base and the town isn't going to go down. So I want to be in a really resilient area um, and I want to have great school districts and I want to be in slightly middle to above average income areas. So it might be a class A to B area, but I might be buying a class C building that doesn't have all the amenities and all the bells and whistles of a new building, but it's a couple hundred dollars per month less rent than the ones with all the bells and whistles that are a new building. Because if people that are high income earners in class A um, housing are hit or they're laid off because they, they make the most money, they're going to move down to class B type asset and just pay a little less rent, but stay in the area. And those that are in B's might move down to C buildings, but they still want to stay in those school districts because they want their kids to stay there. So I like A to B areas, strong school districts, little bit older housing with less amenities where I can charge a rent that is lower than what the, the, the newer properties are and where people are going to stay no matter what happens in that economy. Um, so that's personally what I'm looking for. And then some self-storage if they're in the right area with the right supply demand um, dynamics and, and um, the right market saturation. Okay. So uh, that's great. I invest in multifamily and self-storage as well. And I agree with a lot of, uh, I'd say all of what you, what you just said, particularly that nothing is recession proof. They have different, you know, different asset classes have different degrees of recession resistance. Absolutely. But there's, there's this idea out there of X class, whatever it is, is recession proof. And that's just, it's just nonsense. Nothing's recession proof. It doesn't exist. Absolutely. And everything's also very regional. I think I kind of hit on that in terms of, of areas that are diverse, but you look at areas on, you know, either coast or in the really big cities or the tech hubs that were hit really hard during the last downturn because the housing in those areas tend to really swing. They have big upsides and big downsides. I don't like to invest in those areas. I prefer to be in like really stable areas that don't have a, a huge swing in their values in residential housing when there are, are, you know, highs and lows in the market. So depending on where you invest and where your target market is, you might be much more recession resilient than other people's inve investing in other areas of the country. Absolutely. So that's what you're looking for now and, and looking for moving forward. I wonder if we could step back and talk about your five-year plan so that if anybody out there that's listening is in your shoes from five years ago or anything like it, how can they 
learn from your experience and your plan and maybe, you know, replicate that for themselves. So, you know, let's go through it. What, tell us about your, your five-year plan. Cause it, it worked. Yeah, it did. You know, for me personally, what I had planned to do was I looked at where am I? And I, when you're working full time and you maybe have a family and kids, you really can't afford to be flying all over the country looking at big syndications and trying to partner on deals. Now, granted, you can find a way to do it through syndication. And I'll set that aside for now just because my five-year plan didn't include large apartment buildings. It included small multi-units. But I looked in my area and said, what's on the market that I can actually compete for that I can get with little money down and that I can maybe buy with creative financing? And in, in my area near Hershey, PA, it's still fairly rural. And there's not a lot of supply of big apartment buildings, um, but I could buy four unit apartment buildings really fairly inexpensively compared to where I could buy them elsewhere in the country. And there weren't a whole lot of people buying four unit buildings. So most people were buying singles and flipping them, or they were looking for like duplexes and triplexes. And not a whole lot of people would buy four unit buildings. They'd kind of sit on the market for months and months at a time. So I thought if I could buy a four unit, I have more economies of scale than I have with a single or a, a duplex or a triple. It's not quite commercial, but I can still get commercial financing and you know 20 year loans on them. And I can still go to a small regional bank to take them down. So I focused on the four unit apartment buildings and I would buy a four unit. We'd update all four units, just like you would on a larger multifamily. And we'd raise the value of that property by raising the rents and making them nicer. And then what I did is I would take the equity from increased from the, the value increase and I'd go to the bank and I'd say, can I take a second mortgage using the equity that I've increased in that building as the down payment? So they would either give me 100% financing on the next property and put a second lien against the first, or they would actually do a second mortgage on the first property, give me the cash and let me use that as a down payment for the next one. So I methodically bought primarily four unit apartment buildings, raised values, cashed out and used it as a down payment for the next one. Um, I did have a couple flips of single families there in the mix because if something came up as a foreclosure, a single house that I could buy, you know, for 50 or 60 grand that I knew would be worth 120 to 150 after, we would just buy that, put in the sweat equity and then do the same thing, keep it as a rental and then take the, the equity and use it as a down payment for another four unit apartment building. And I just figured out I needed about $150,000 a year um, minimum in order to retire. And so I needed to buy enough multifamily units to allow me to replace that income before I pulled the trigger to retire. Nice. That's a smart strategy. You don't hear a lot of people talking about that specific strategy. You know, you, normally you hear about, well, I just refinanced and then got that money out and went and looked for the next property, whatever it might be, the typical Burr method. But it sounds mm -hmm. like you did something slightly different working with your bank to maybe make the transaction easier or something like that. Uh, sounded like it worked out a little better than most Burr situations. Yeah, they were happy to just say, hey, we'd love for you to keep the mortgage with us. We see that it's worth this much more. Let's just give you 100% financing on the next one and put a second lien against you know, the existing property. So it worked out nicely. And I didn't have to pay as much for the refinance costs as you would with the Burr on a single family, for example. Makes sense. Yeah, that's very smart. So how many of those, I mean, if you obviously uh, had some kind of numbers in mind with this you had your five-year goal, so that's a number in terms of time. 
but your number in terms of a uh, number of units that you need or something like that. I think you said that you and your husband own 70 units. Did I get that right? Yeah, at the time we had 60. My plan was in four years to buy 12 units per year because I already owned 12 at the time I created my five-year plan. I bought those 12 you know, before the crash or right about that time. And then I just sat on them. So I had a lot of equity built up for five years that I couldn't touch. So I had those 12 units and used that as my initial equity, but I planned on buying 12 units a year for four years. That would get me to 60 units and then a year of taking all the income from those units and using it to pay down the debt that I had acquired to remodel them and, and save a, about a year's salary. So that was my plan, it was 12 units a year and then actually live on the, um, my salary and put all the money toward pay down and savings the fifth year. Wow, so that's great. And I think something that most people might run into if they're thinking about this is that Kiyosaki saying, uh, don't ask yourself or don't say I can't afford it or I don't have the money, ask yourself, how can I afford it? And when you're saying, something like, I'm gonna buy 12 units a year myself. And most people are gonna say, I don't have the money to put 20% down on <laughs> 12 units a year for the next four years. But so in that strategy, did you have that plan in mind of I'm gonna go through this financing process and add value and everything like that? Or did you figure it out along the way? I guess, how much of the path did you have figured out for yourself before you did it? And how much of it did you figure it out along the way? Kind of a mixture of both. You know, <laughs> I, I learned that I can't depend on my job because I worked for AIG and I was told like every year, your department's probably next to be laid off. Y'all need to start thinking Ugh. about other jobs, you know? And five years ago when it really put like a fire under me, they said, okay, our department is now being sold. Everybody should start thinking about what else you want to do. Wow. And I'm like, I live in rural PA. I've got a six figure a year job that I'm not likely to replicate here from rural PA because uh, I got that job in Houston uh, before I moved here. And I knew that being an entrepreneur and having your own business like my husband did wasn't necessarily the right way either, especially in healthcare <laughs> when we didn't know healthcare was going to collapse and change and you know all of that. And I knew that real estate was really the only thing that I could, to I could control like 80% of. I could find deals and I could figure out creatively how to get them funded. So I, I knew I would have to utilize every possible means of financing properties, seller financing, hard money loans, uh, banks, business credit cards at 0%. I wouldn't recommend everybody run out and do that if you're not really, really good with money. But having a financial advisor background, I was very, very careful and cautious. But I played the 0% balance transfer game I built up LLCs that I could get credit for. And I just decided, come hell or high water, I'm about to lose my job and I better figure this out and ask myself exactly what you said with Kiyosaki. Not there aren't any deals or run any money, but how can I make a deal and how can I find the money and how can I get it done? And I was just very determined that I was gonna hit down the doors until I found the money. So I partnered on a few. Um, I went to the bank for a few. I did seller financing for three in a row, which was like amazing. I couldn't believe these retiring landlords agreed to let me buy a property with 10,000 down. And then I borrowed 10,000 down because I didn't have it. You know, I had no money and $700,000 in debt and four babies. So if I could do it while working full time and having no money, anybody can do it if you have the determination and the persistence that you're going to figure it out as you go. Absolutely. I love that. It's something that you see 
all the time on these uh, online forums, if you're involved at all, real estate forums, people are like, oh, I can't invest in real estate because X, Y, Z, I'm, you know, I'm a teacher or whatever, or something like that, or I can't do it because, you know, I've worked 40 hours a week. Well, so do a lot of people who have done yeah. it. So yeah. open up your eyes and, and see the people who have succeeded at that plan. Yeah, yeah. And the reality is in the United States of America, we still have so much opportunity. And it, it, it takes years to get there to, to create your own business and start your own business. It takes years to save up enough of, of your salary. But there is nothing like real estate to grow wealth. You just have to be resourceful. And whatever you don't have, if you don't have time or you don't have money, leverage other people's time and other people's money. Partner on deals until you can figure out a way to get them on your own. So there's no excuse about why can't somebody can't at least get in the game. You might just all have a different path and how to get there depending on what your own time, money, and skill set is. Absolutely. Now, regarding managing your current portfolio, you have larger multifamilies, which there's no way you can possibly self-manage a 200 unit property remotely. <laughs> At least I don't think so. But in your personal portfolio uh, that you built up over the years, are you self-managing? Do you have property management? Do you have a mix? What does that look like? And, and how did you get to the point where you are in terms of managing those properties? Sure. So I have a mix. And what I will say about this before I even you know delve into the details is there's really no one right way not only to, to buy property and to own property, but to manage property. It really depends a lot on your, your area, where you live, what the property management options are for you, and what your family dynamic looks like. So for my own portfolio of 70 units, my husband and I actually still self-manage those 70. Wow. We are in a rural area. We don't have great property management options. We've had some property management companies that we were not real thrilled with. And my husband's in a position where as a chiropractor, he owns his own business. And really, we're in a small area. So he can see all of his patients three days a week. And then two days a week, he basically takes care of any maintenance issues or whatever comes up with our properties. Um, we made them turnkey. We renovated them so nicely that truly not much goes wrong with these properties. And we've got a lot of really great subcontractors in our area that we have good relationships with. So when I say we self-manage, you know, we get a call. If somebody has a leaking toilet, my husband can check it in five minutes and maybe change the guts. If it's beyond that, he calls a plumber and the plumber comes and they take care of the issue. So it's easy for us in a rural area where we have really strong relationships. It's a tight knit community to self-manage and rely on third parties to, to help us to get the work done. With that said, my 200 units that I own with two partners that we've bought in this last year one of my partners has his own property management company. And so we have the benefit of he has a back office team that, you know, collects checks, enters the accounting, enters everything into Appfolio, which we use, and handles our investor reporting, where I, may, I manage the on-site property management and maintenance staff. And so I will check in through Appfolio. I'm basically an asset manager. So I'm managing the property manager and the maintenance and making sure that they meet our business plan but I'm not there on site every day. So that's easier for me to do on those 200 units than it is for my husband and I to self-manage our 70. And then the ones in Atlanta um, are 250 units. I'm the primary asset manager for those. And so I manage a third-party large management company that's in Atlanta. And I do that from afar, but I have a daily call with them, a weekly call with them. I'm looking at reports and we're working through it together. So I've seen the gamut of, of ways that you can manage your properties and, and I'm actually involved in 
at a different level with each type of asset. Wow, that's impressive. And uh, we've talked about asset management on multifamily properties in the past. And, uh, you know, from the outside, people might think, well, don't, doesn't the property manager just handle it? I'm like, no, you really have to oversee them and make sure For they're sure. the plan. For sure. What do the next five years look like for you? I mean, I would assume you have another five-year plan for yourself. What does that look like? I'm going to give you an answer that's probably going to surprise you, Taylor, but here, here's the thing. So I worked 70 to 80 hours a week, literally for 12 years in order to get to the point of financial freedom. Mm-hmm. And you get to the point of financial freedom and you retire. And because you're a very driven person like myself, you're like, okay, what's next? What do I got to do? I'm going to go bigger. I'm going to go greater. But the reality is I worked this hard so that when my kids walk into the door at 3.05 PM every day, I am wife and mom and I'm 100% focused on them. And what that means is that my drive and my you know, desire to collect more and create all this legacy wealth has to shut off every day at three o'clock. The other thing that I've kind of sacrificed on the way to get here is that I haven't really given myself enough time to take care of myself. So I'm really committed that from my day from eight o'clock to 3 p.m., I'm actually spending an hour making healthy meals. I'm spending an hour working out in the gym. And then I've got like five and a half to six hours left per day that I'm committed to work. And so my goal for the next five years is to grow my multifamily portfolio or whatever other asset class I decide to invest in as large as I can in the most healthy way, um, the most wise way, buying the right assets, especially if we're heading in toward the downturn to where I can make as much progress and create as much wealth as possible in five to six hours a day. And if I can only look for deals for two hours a day, because I'm asset managing these other, you know, 520 units, then I'll look for deals two two hours a day, or I'll network with other people to potentially partner on. So I don't really have a number plan because I've reached that level of financial freedom where I'm really focused now over the next several years with just being happy and having, you know, joy in life and and finally feeling what it's like to work 35 hours a week (laughs) instead of 80 hours a week because I have known no different for the last decade of my life. And so, you know, I'm not going to buy property just to buy property or have a certain number of units just to have a certain number of units. Um, but I'm always looking for deals and being open to new opportunities. And, you know, I'm evaluating four, four deals next week. And I've got other people that have brought me deals to think about partnering on. And I'm looking at those. So I'm always open to opportunity, but I'm really not um, putting a number that I have to meet in any way, shape or form over the next few years, at least not at this point. Also not knowing what's going to happen with the economy. Nice. I mean, uh, it, it sounds like you're, I'm, 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 I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like your five-year plans are, you know, get the kids into college and live my life. Like you said, reduce the amount of work you have to do. And it's, it's, uh, you know, you're just, you're, you got to where you wanted to be. So what, what else, what else is there than just to enjoy it? You, you made it happen. Yeah. And you know, we always talk about passive income. Why do we do real estate? Cause we want to create passive income. Why do we want passive income? Cause we want to live life by design. So when you finally get there, you have to ask yourself, am I really living life by design and enjoying my financial freedom? Or am I just a slave to more financial freedom that's going to cost, you know, cost me a lot more hours to get there. So, you know, to your point, I have a son who's a junior in high school. So he wants, he's talking about college and he's like, you know, mom, I think I really want to do real estate. I want to be 
a, a real estate multimillionaire too. And I know you can teach me in a couple of years, why go to Scott College and spend six figures for a degree when I don't know what I want to do? So we're like, you know, the next two years, we're really pouring into him and teaching him finance and real estate in the business. And that's more important to me than, you know, buying another hundred unit property. Um, with that said, I've also created a company with one of my partners and we're very actively looking for deals. So I'm definitely not like going, I'm retired. I'm going to sit here and eat bonbons and not do anything anymore. <laughs> like I'm still going to continue to grow, but I'm just making myself kind of rein it in and not forget why I work so hard. And that now that I have this financial freedom to really be purposeful about spending the next five years or so focusing primarily on my children in the evenings, um, pouring into them and then just seeing what comes and making wise investment decisions, you know, during that few hours a day that I'm willing to do it. Nice. Well, if I can give you a little bit of a hard time, I mean, it's 5.37 on a Saturday <laughs> evening and you're talking to me on a podcast interview. Just so. for you. Oh, great. Well, you're still working hard. Is, is, yeah, I am. That's still in you. So that's great. And, and congratulations on everything that you've achieved. And I'm sure that you're, you know, the next five years are going to be great, no matter what direction you take it. If it's, if it's getting your son, turning him into a multimillionaire, then fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. So and never a- underestimate the amount of, of work that you can get done in a few hours a day, really. You know, if you work very strategically and, and wisely, you can still accomplish a lot more than you think that you can. A strategic plan. And, you know, do you, let's dig into that. Do you have a, a daily checklist or something like that? Or do you write a list or how do you do that and stay focused and not get distracted by Instagram? Yes. <laughs> I actually time block. And, you know, when, when I worked for AIG, um, I, I was a, like a senior project manager for a lot of these financial projects. And so I had to be very, very disciplined with time and scheduling and project planning. And so I'm really, really good at doing that and being disciplined. But when I left my job in May and I had my day back, it was easy to just be like, what am I going to do today? Because you kind of get out of that routine in this month. <laughs> so I time block my schedule. So what I've recently started to do is I've started to say, okay, listen, from 3.05 till 9, I am at sports with my kids. So I need an hour a day, you know, in quiet time and prayer and in the Bible, I need an hour a day in the gym and I need an hour a day to meal prep. So I've got five hours left per day, let's say that I can work. I've time blocked that day so that I've got 30 minute to one hour segments for finding deals, for networking for investor relationships, for asset management, for handling current tenant issues, and for listening to a podcast or reading a book. So that's how I have my time blocked. And I'm committed that during each of those times, I'm, that's all I'm working on. And so I have some set goals for the year for, you know, I'd like to develop, you know, 100 new investor relationships. I'd like to review, you know, a deal every single day. Um, so if I can put in the activity to make progress in each of those areas that's important to me and that I know will yield results and yield wealth, then I'm going to be successful. So I don't have like a, I have to um, buy 200 units this year, but I have, I'm going to look at so many deals a week and I'm going to call so many brokers a week and I'm going to call so many investors a week. And I make sure that during that time, that is exactly what I'm doing. And then there's some malleability in there. So for example, if, you know, Taylor says, hey, can you do a podcast on a Saturday? 
I'm going to go, yes, I'm going to do it on a Saturday and I'm going to, you know, not do it on Monday and I can go out to lunch with a girlfriend or something like that. But I, I time block my time and then I have like three to five things that I want to accomplish for that category for the year and for the month and for the week. And I just tick them off as I go. So it sounds like you're, well, you're obviously still, you're going through the steps and everything. So these are proven steps to produce results and maybe you're less focused on the result and more focused on the execution at this point, but it's almost a, I don't want to say certainty, but it seems very likely that these steps will continue to produce, you know, results in terms of buying properties and things like that, as long as you keep doing them, but you're less concerned about closing on those properties and and just focusing on just keeping doing the work and, and making it happen just at your own, at your own pace and on your own time. Yes. And, you know, I, I've done business consulting. And so I've been very involved in every kind of program you can imagine for goal setting, smart goals, big, hairy goals, you know, every kind of thing. They need to be, you know, written. They need to be measurable. They need to be attainable. They need to be repeatable, et cetera, et cetera. But most people's goals are very arbitrary. And what happens is you either really exceed them and then you're like, now what? Or they're too big and you can't achieve them and then you feel deflated and defeated and then you give up too early. So we, we put these concrete numbers as guide rails, but they can have some um, you know, unforeseen consequences to our actual ability to make progress and to be successful. And so I feel like it's better to, I'm doing the self-experiment, you know, create the guide rails and create things that are going to motivate you to take the next step. But your goal should really be a... Um, they should have a meaning, not be arbitrary. So your goal should be, I'm going to grow in every single area, every single day. And I'm going to put, you know, full throttle when I'm focused on that to make, to accomplishing something big and not setting limits on myself, but really just continuing to achieve by continuing to seek growth at, at, as fast as you can in every area. And you get a lot more joy and a lot less, um, blinders on as to what you need to do. And it allows you to be more creative and the results just come. So for me, it's been kind of enlightening to be able to goal set this way through time blocking and, and a focus on growth rather than an arbitrary number that makes some people also make really stupid mistakes. Like I've got to buy a thousand units this year. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to focus to close deals no matter what it takes to get those thousand units done. And the economy may hand you super expensive deals that aren't going to cash flow, that aren't going to be well, do well, but you're so focused on the goal that you have the blinders on that keep you from making wise decisions. So that's just an example where an arbitrary goal might not be a good thing. It's a very common arbitrary goal, though, at this point, or seemingly arbitrary goal to say, I'm going to close a thousand units this year, another 2000 or something like that, that might not be the greatest um, goal to have. I mean, our goal should be doing good deals rather Absolutely. than doing a volume of deals. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Okay. So we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Dana, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Number one, what is the best investment you've ever made? The best real estate investment I ever made was my first JV 73 unit multifamily apartment building that I did last year, which really gave me the confidence that I could go bigger in multifamily and springboarded me to start buying a lot bigger properties to create that much more financial freedom much more quickly than I had done it on my own. Cool. Cool. On the other side of that, what is the worst investment you ever made? 
the first property I flipped, I sat on it for a year, made every mistake that you could, lost my shirt, lost 10 grand, lost a job in the process and learned a whole lot about taking risks and taking on too much uh, when I didn't have the money to be doing it. Wow. Did you use a hard money loan for that or something like that where you're paying the interest all the time? You buy it yourself? Like what are some of the specific mistakes you made? I didn't even know about hard money back then. It was back in 2003, we got a traditional mortgage on a house. Uh, we didn't know the rule of location, location, location. We bought it facing the parking lot of a grocery store, but it was in a, like a really cool um, urban area that was like regentrifying and lots of walkability and bars and restaurants and stuff. But uh, the summer started and the trash cans started to absolutely reek. 100 degree weather in Houston and the house smelled like a dumpster. And every time someone came to see that house, it was like he wanted to vomit because it smelled so bad. So that was like a huge learning lesson. Um, I hired illegal contractors who I didn't know did, you know, weren't here legally. They didn't pull permits. They messed things up. We had to redo it. I mean, every mistake that you could make, Taylor, I made it. Wow. Wow. But look at you now. Look at that's you. That's right. That's right. I didn't stop. I didn't let it stop me. So that's good. That's what matters. And right. my favorite question at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in investing? Only do good deals with really good people. Never pursue a deal uh, with someone that doesn't have absolute integrity and just trust your gut on who you work with and who you partner with. Nice, nice. I like the, I like to trust my gut. It hasn't steered me wrong yet, but uh, you never know. But it's been good so far. So yeah, that is great advice. If folks want to learn more about you, about your business, uh, where can they get in touch with you? Sure, you can email me at info at reimom.com. And I have a website, which is reimom.com or on Facebook, uh, creating real estate wealth that lasts with, our, with Anna, reimom. Nice, nice. Well, thank you for joining us today and, and all the great lessons and congratulations on, uh, you know, leaving your job and, and achieving everything from your five-year plan and, you know, hope the next five years go, uh, go even better than the last. Thank you so much. It was so nice to be your guest today. Happy to talk with you on this Saturday evening. Thanks for taking the time away. And uh, yeah, once again, thanks for all the lessons. Everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's a very big help. If you know anyone that could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the fold. I hope you have a great day and a great rest of your week. We'll talk to you on the next episode. Bye-bye.